You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Look at cyber operations in the hybrid war, C3 and electronic warfare. The Republic of the Marshall Islands suffers rolling DDoS attacks. Okta gives a detailed account of its experience with the Lapsus Group. Lapsus is under the law enforcement microscope. The FCC sanctions Kaspersky. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture on getting full potential from deception systems. Our guest is Greg Skasny of Blue Shift Cybersecurity with remote workforce security concerns. And CISA adds to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 28, 2022. Western governments continue to warn that Russian cyber attacks remain a real possibility and that organizations should prepare to defend themselves. CISA director Jen Easterly put it this way to CNN over the weekend. She said, All businesses, all critical infrastructure owners and operators need to assume that disruptive cyber activity is something that the Russians are thinking about, that are preparing for, that are exploring options, as the president said. That's why we are so focused on making sure that everybody understands the potential for this disruptive cyber activity. And it's not about panic, it's about preparation. The largest Russian cyber operation of the hybrid war so far still seems to be interference with Viasat ground stations, now pretty clearly attributed to Russia's GRU military intelligence service. There was some spillover of this attack into neighboring countries. Other parties not directly involved have stepped up cyber espionage during Russia's war against Ukraine, as they might be expected to do in any period of crisis and heightened tension. Chinese attempts against NATO networks, for example, are said to have risen by 116% since Russia invaded its neighbor. Russia's failure to execute the widely expected intense cyber attacks is joined by another small but probably related mystery. Why hasn't Russian electronic warfare, particularly jamming, been more in evidence? Breaking defense reports that Ukrainian command, control, and communications have gone largely undisrupted. Why that's so isn't entirely clear, but the matter is less mysterious than Russia's failure to engage in widespread cyber attacks against Ukrainian infrastructure. Among the possible reasons, which aren't mutually exclusive for a lack of jamming, are concern that jamming Ukrainian comms would also interfere with Russian comms. Both armies use common or adjacent portions of the electromagnetic spectrum, 
and jamming must be highly directional to avoid interfering with one's own forces. Such directional jamming might not be feasible when opposing forces interpenetrate one another to the extent seen in Ukraine. They may not want to interfere with cellular communications when both sides are using them. There may be a desire to continue to monitor enemy communications because intercepting them is yielding valuable intelligence. There may be resistance of some Ukrainian tactical communications to jamming. Some of the sources Breaking Defense talked to think that Ukraine may have received enough jam-resistant radios from the West to give Russian electronic warfare units difficulties. And finally, simple combat failure. This seems unlikely since Russian electronic warfare capabilities have for decades been highly regarded, but it's a possibility, especially given the extent of the combat failures on display elsewhere. In a related problem, the Washington Post reports that Russian units are apparently making extensive use of insecure tactical communications, which has enabled Ukrainian forces to collect against and target Russian formations. Last Wednesday, Internet service on the Republic of the Marshall Islands began to sustain rolling distributed denial-of-service attacks. RNZ reports that home, business, and government DSL and dedicated lines, as well as mobile 4G services, became intermittent or non-functional, forcing the National Telecommunications Authority to repeatedly issue messages updating customers about intermittent disruptions and urgent maintenance needed to restore service. By Friday, the NTA had concluded they were under DDoS attack. NTA CEO Tommy Kitchener Jr. said, After several days, it became apparent that NTA systems were shutting down as the result of a large-scale distributed denial-of-service attack. The attackers and their motives remain unknown, although Mr. Kitchener speculates that Russia might be a suspect. Why Russia would have any interest in meddling with Internet service in the Marshalls is unclear. In any case, recent reports indicate the attacks are over and service has been restored to normal. Okta has published a detailed timeline of the attack it sustained in January from the Lapsus Group. The company traced the incident to a compromised account belonging to a CITL employee, and the company also acknowledged that it was a mistake to have delayed notification of its own customers. Okta's statement said, We want to acknowledge that we made a mistake— explaining that they didn't initially recognize the extent of the issue. At that time, we didn't recognize that there was a risk to Okta and our customers. We should have more actively and forcefully compelled information from CITL. Had they realized the extent of the threat, Okta said, they would have made a different decision. Several arrests have been made in the Lapsus case. They're all teenagers, and the case indicates the degree of damage relatively inexperienced attackers can work— Gizmodo over the weekend took a look at a paradoxical criminal operation that took advantage of weaknesses in their targets, which were by no means amateurish, bereft, or ill-prepared organizations, and caused considerable disruption to their operations. At the same time, the Lapsus gang showed an ultimately fatal inattention to its own security, leaving clues that enabled law enforcement to run them to ground much faster than would have been the case with more sophisticated professional criminal organizations. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission has added Kaspersky to its list of communications service and equipment providers who pose a threat to U.S. national security, Reuters reports. U.S. concerns derive from Kaspersky's obligation under Russian law 
to provide certain kinds of cooperation with the Russian government. Kaspersky's official statement Friday deplored the FCC's action as unconstitutional and baseless, adding, Kaspersky will continue to assure its partners and customers on the quality and integrity of its products and remains ready to cooperate with U.S. government agencies to address the FCC's and any other regulatory agencies' concerns. It is, indeed, a political judgment, that is, one involving a judgment of Kaspersky's exposure to irresistible pressure from the Russian government. But that doesn't mean it's not a security judgment. In this case, the ultimate threat isn't Kaspersky's code or its behavior, but rather its awkward position with respect to the Kremlin. And finally, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has added 66 entries to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. If you're responsible for a U.S. federal civilian agency, take note, your organization is expected to remediate each vulnerability by the deadline specified in the catalog. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. As we've settled into the new normal, with many workers connecting remotely from home networks into work networks, the traditional ways of achieving visibility aren't necessarily cut and dry. Greg Skazny is CEO at BlueShift Cybersecurity, and I spoke with him about the growing spectrum of monitoring options available to security teams. There are all kinds of, of 
telemetry agents, and I won't I won't mention any by name, but you know, they're telemetry agents you can put on on equipment to watch what's happening, right? And and pipe that into your SOC or your or your MSSP. I think that's important. And then depending on the risk, like you have to understand the risk of individuals that are working from home, what they have access to. You can go all the way to the to the point of even putting, you know, packet capture type nodes on their home networks, right? It's not hard to do. Hardware is very, very inexpensive. It's you know, that's not a a, a barrier to entry any longer to be able to get that information into your SOC, right? But you just have to plan that out, right? People need to think just differently about, you know, zero trust is part of that too. So I don't want to get, I'll get off on tangents because it's the way my brain works, but um, <laughs> you need to kind of sit down and think about that and plan those things out. And you can do that with all kinds of stuff, whether it's a tabletop exercise or just sitting and in, in thinking creatively about, okay, here's what we have. Here's the risk of what these people have access to. What do we need to put there? Is it just an agent that we can get security telemetry from? Is it, hey, I need an agent and I need some, you know, packet capture type devices because they're very, very effective. Um, what is it? You know, what what is the the threat model we have with this with these this group of employees? You know, executives going to be a little different than end users. What do they have access to, and how can we best protect that and detect and respond should something bad happen? To what degree is it a challenge that uh, everybody's environment now is a little bit different? They're using different providers. You know, their their home networks are set up differently. It's not like they're uh, all hosed in through that office network anymore. Right. And that's, that's you know, that's part of the, the challenge. But I think it still comes down to networks for networks. <laughs> and mm. even though you may have, you know, your, your kids doing some things in the network and you doing other things, you know, having those devices that you do use for work you know, monitored appropriately. To me, that's the, that's the, the biggest thing that needs to happen is that, you know, defensive security, there's a lot of ways to go about it. Right. But it, it really comes down to a big data issue is that when something goes bad, how quickly can you detect and how quickly can you respond to, to make that just a non-issue, right? The earlier you get to those things in the kill chain, the better off it is. So, you know, planning out what you can do in your environment. And, and again, it, it sounds difficult, coming from a guy who's technical, I, I get that, but it's really not, <laughs> it's really not all that hard. If you, again, if you plan it out correctly, it doesn't, it doesn't take that much, doesn't take that much budget. Um, it can be done cost effectively and it can, it can be very effective for the organization, right? So again, it, the faster you can get to those things, the better it's going to be. And it's not, that's not going to stop anytime soon. What about the need to respect people's privacy, that, that this is a, a blended network and they're probably doing stuff at home that, they wouldn't be doing at, at the office, but that's okay. Yeah, but those things are risky too, right? So depending on what those things are, and I, won't, I mean, I won't get into things that we detect, but you do have to kind of blend that, you know, things that I think there are things you can do, right? I think there are things you can do like not breaking SSL and things like that, that while that does give you good security telemetry, they get you on the fence of, okay, that privacy piece that you just don't want to step on. So you have to come up with strategies to be able to utilize technology and it's out there to not trample on people's privacy, but still give you the telemetry that you need from a, a defensive standpoint to be able to detect and respond to uh, alerts and events that happen when you're accessing corporate data. Do you have any practical tips for rolling out a program like this to, to make it so that it's you know not overwhelming all at once? Um, you know, it, it, it's so custom to businesses, it's hard to give out those practical tips, right? So, but you need to understand, you know, understand where your data sits. You know, people talk about data, data classification, but do, I mean, truly understand what that means if that data gets out, right? Some data is more important than others. Some data have worse repercussions should that fall into the wrong hands than others. So, you know, that's a hard task to do, but it's something that you need to do. And you need to sit down with not, it's not just IT's job. It's not just the security department's job, right? That's kind of everybody's job. Then you need to start that educational campaign, right? To to 
to teach people why it's important. And then the very last thing you need to do is implement the technology, right? So and I'm a tech guy, right? And I, I sell technology solutions, you know, mm. and, and people need to realize that that technology is that last step, right? You, the, the people in the process need to come first. Um, you need to get the buy-in. And then that makes the technology part easy. And then when you do that, the solutions almost become self-evident, right? It's one of those things that, okay, I know what I need to do. I know where my risks are. I know what I need to, I know that you know, these are where my people need to be and where my data is at. Now I need to find XYZ solution to reduce that risk, eliminate that risk, or provide some compensating control around that risk. That's Greg Skazny from BlueShift Cybersecurity. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She is the Technology Research Director for Security at Accenture. Uh, Malek, it is always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, you and I have been talking about uh, deception systems, and I want to dig in today and really uh, talk about ways to maximize their full potential, if this is something that you're going to deploy to get the most out of it. What can you share with us? Yeah, so we talked about the potential use of deception systems for uh, resilient design of uh, software, right? And this notion of expanding the users of deception systems or the folks who benefit from deception systems beyond the security community. Uh, As we talked before, you know, information security professionals are comfortable or or familiar with this idea of honey files and honey tokens, but uh, application developers, software engineers, System admins are not familiar with that concept, and there is a big opportunity for them to use this technique, this deception technique, and these deception systems to gather more information about attackers and how they behave and to use that information in their uh, software system design. So that's one big opportunity. Um, The way they can do that is this information that they gather can expose opportunities for architectural improvements in operability and in uh, simplicity of the software systems. Uh, For instance, you know, spawning a remote interactive shell is a, a consistent attacker behavior that is seen in the deception environment. They may decide to disable that uh, as they, you know, deploy uh, a real-world system. Um, they can monitor attacker behavior and they can, you know, through that attacker tracing, they can develop attack trees that they can leverage for threat modeling. Uh, you know, um, one of the assumptions that we typically make about attacker behavior is that attackers would always take the, the path of least resistance when uh, moving laterally within a network. But that may not be the, you know, the, that assumption may not be correct, right? Um, they may be motivated with something specific. They, they may be motivated by a target they want to attack. So um, if we have these systems in place and we're monitoring the attacker behavior, then we can correct our uh, assumptions. And then we can leverage that information again uh, in threat modeling. Also, that information can be even used to design, if you will, experimentation platforms, right? We can start playing with, you know, what are the defenses that are 
you know, most useful to deploy within a real world environment? What deters these attackers from going further into your environment? Uh, maybe what's something that triggers them that this environment is not realistic? Maybe if they see certain monitoring tools, that would make the environment more believable to them. If they don't see those tools there, then, you know, that could tell them that this environment is not valuable to the, to the organization and therefore is not worth deploying ransomware on. So there is a huge opportunity for learning a lot about how these attackers are behaving and then again how do we design the real world environments so that they are resilient to any type of attack all right well, interesting for sure malek ben salem thanks for joining us And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security Ha. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.